Well, good morning and welcome again to Fellowship of Huntsville Church. Uh, our pastor, C.F. Hazelwood, is off on a hunting sabbatical, I think. And uh, I want you to know you're welcome here and loved here. I don't care what you've done this week and what you have done and what you have uh, experienced this week. You're welcome here and you're loved here. Uh, David Jones, we're going to hear from him in just a few moments with the sermon. And um, he asked me to read the verses this morning. And um, you know, David every week has a, this is the day of something, you know, astronaut day, donut day, mother-in-law day was recently ago, you know, and I asked him just a while ago, so what's, what's today? He said, I don't know, I have an app for that. Then he walks off. <laughs> I don't have the app, David. <laughs> so I immediately started praying and fasting, and I came up with this. Today is the day of the day after the opening day of deer season. How about that? Y'all like that? I could say it's the second day of deer season, but I didn't think that would be very impactful. So anyway, we're glad you're here today. Thank you for coming to fellowship with us today. And uh, Brother Jones will be speaking today. God will be speaking through Brother Jones today. And we're reading from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great, great day, Lord. We await your voice, await your spirit to speak to us this morning, God. Better yet, I pray we just go away from this place, change people, having heard from you, God, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to, uh, again, if you want to go back to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. When I was little, um, my parents, our parents, took us to church all the time. We grew up in a Southern Baptist church. And we didn't, it wasn't called Awanas back then. It was called RAs and GAs, Royal Ambassadors and Girls in Action. And so um, I remember memorizing scripture, but it definitely was not like the Awana of today. And we memorized verses, but I think we did more crafts than anything. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little kid then. I, I, it's a long time ago. I can't remember. But I do remember three different passages learning those when I was a kid. We learned more than three, but it's ones that lock in, and you remember remembering them. If that makes sense. Anyway, the first one is obviously John 3.16. Everybody memorizes that from the time you're one week old, I think, until, you know, you just, if you're in church, they ingrain that into you, John 3.16. Second one is John 11.35. Now, I remember John 11.35 because I was the most proud, as a kid, I was the most proud about a John 11.35, which is Jesus wept. I think it's only my family that said that down there. <laughs> It's the shortest verse in the Bible. So when you're a kid, you're like, I know the shortest verse in the Bible. And you start telling and bragging it to your friends. I just remember that whole time, however many years that lasted, at least up until three years ago, that I'm proud of knowing the shortest verse in the Bible. The second one is this one. James 1, 2 through 4. I remember memorizing it when I was in either junior high or high school but it didn't make an impact on my life until I was in college. And when I got to college, life became much more real for me. The Lord woke me up to a lot of things. And this verse itself began to be 
somewhat of a burden to me. Not necessarily a bad burden, but it became one that I'm confused about. I know it to be true, but how is this possible? And I know that through Christ working through me that I can consider everything with joy. But is that really, I don't know how to do that all the time. And things get confusing and difficult, but life is full of trouble. It's a constant deal. Trouble can be as small as, um, did I turn the stove off when I left the house? I'm not sure. Wait, wait, no, I did. And what was that? Two seconds of anxiety. Little bit of anxiety. Trouble can be such little things like that, but they can also be a phone call that your child was killed in a car accident. And I know that has happened and does happen even to people within this church. And I can't imagine the trauma and the trouble and the trial to go through. But life is full of stuff all the time at work and with family and with loved ones and with neighbors and with people that you don't even know. We have conflict with people on the other side of the world that we hear through the news and I've never even met them before, but I've got anxiety. And what's interesting about anxiety is it's like this other organ. I need to ask, I should have had Greg explain this while he was sitting up here. But the point is, is that it's as, actually as if we've got an anxiety organ inside of our chest somewhere that looks like a rope. And that rope is tied into a knot. And then when I get anxious, that knot is pulled tight. We all feel that. It's like this tightness in the chest. And it's quick. When I get worried about something, anxious, trouble is at hand. Whatever the case may be, this is something that we all deal with and we deal with it a lot. So I titled this thing, Trouble is Your Friend. Because way back when, back in the day when CF started John, somewhere in that realm of time, there was a sermon that he, he said, trouble is your friend. And I didn't look up which one, but it was after he started John 1.1. And that just hung with me. I'm like, this is how you say that in a simple form, trouble is your friend. So I started using that with the college students. And some of them will remember, they'll go, yeah, yeah, we've heard it plenty of times, David. And so during Bible studies, I'll say, well, trouble is your friend. And I've been saying this to our kids, mainly specifically Asher, because he's the only one at home now. Asher, trouble is your friend. And Asher's like, yeah, right, Dad. So, you know, you tell something to your kids. You know, you remember when you were a kid and your parents told you something. You're like, please stop telling me that because I've heard it 600 times now. But it became real in my life in a sense of not that it hadn't already become real, but something so simple as trouble is your friend. Because friend is friend and it's friendly and trouble is not friendly. And, and friend is something you like, but trouble is not what I like. Friend gives me comfort and peace and, and an easement. And trouble makes me anxious. And that knot is being stretched and pulled inside of my chest. They seem like opposites, but that's exactly what this verse is. It's, it seems like an opposite, but it's exactly true because it's how we learn. It's how we grow. It's, it's, it's how God develops us. We hate it, yet we're told to find all joy in it. 
And that's hard for us. That is simply hard. So reading the verse again, James 1, 2 through 4, consider it all joy. All meaning all, everything. There, there's nothing exempted from the word all. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, the various is, it doesn't matter where it's coming from. It doesn't matter how it got there. It could have been self-motivated. It could have been the sin in my life or a mistake that I made or something that my wife did, which I like to blame her a lot, but it's usually my fault. But so you, you, you want to find out where the source of trouble is, and sometimes it's from multiple sources. My neighbor did it. My son did it. My boss did it. Something else happened to create this turmoil in my life. James isn't specific to this. He just says various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance being something that you can then withstand better next time. Next time you can do it better, and you do it better, and you do it better. And let endurance have its perfect result. Perfect being not necessarily that perfect as in no flaws, perfect meaning mature. Meaning you are growing up and becoming mature, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. James is the author of this book. And this is James, brother of perfect brother, Jesus. So Jesus is his older brother. So he's growing up in this, and there's no specification as the age difference, but they're probably fairly close. I mean, he's an adult at this point now, but of course he writes this many years later after Jesus died, but he has an older brother who they, the family of Jesus, don't ever recognize him during his childhood, especially, and not even during his ministry of him being the Messiah. They don't do, except for Mary, they don't do anything to recognize him of that until his resurrection. And then most importantly, till after Pentecost, all of a sudden, all kinds of people, their eyes are open, and especially brother James. This is the right use of the word brother, because he's actually Jesus' brother. And James is very pointed in the book of James, very specific. And his goal is maturity. Grow up. When I was doing my first or my internship, uh, for my degree in college. So between my sophomore and junior year, I went to work for an architecture firm in Dallas area. And so before that, I had worked at a Christian camp where I grew up and some other jobs around the house and so forth. And so I go work for this firm up in, in Dallas for six months and my eyes were opened within the first few days. I am working with a bunch of 40 to 50-year-old men, 60-year-old men, who have not graduated out of junior high. They're, they're, the, the conversations, the thoughts, the comments, and so forth, like, well, you guys aren't growing up. Am I, am I to look forward to this? Is this where my life is going, is back into junior high? The comments about whose mom did this and some woman over here and yada, yada, all this. This is crazy. And I, I thought, this is not getting me excited for independent adulthood. People just have a hard time growing up and just maturing. But believers do the same thing. Don't we not struggle with the same thing? James is saying, grow up. And the foundation, the first point that he wants to make about growing up is consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That becomes, that becomes the instrument that pushes us forward to really understanding and being able to implement the rest of the book. 
A lot, of it, a lot of it we can read and start to make sense of it, but really applying it in life, it isn't until we start really dealing well with our struggles. And isn't, isn't that you are happy every time you encounter a trial. It is, I am going to give this to the Lord and he's going to use me and work for me or work in me that he is glorified through me in my handling or basically his handling of my trial through me. And so this is what James is trying to communicate. So I want to I look at different trials and, and the issues that were going on around this final 12 hours of Jesus' life. And so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. When we look at chapter 26, starting in verse 30, when we look at this, James is basically saying, it isn't necessarily that trouble is your friend, but even more so, trouble is your mentor. Trouble is the thing that moves you forward into maturity. It, it grows us, and this is how, what God uses to grow us, is trouble, issues. And there are a lot of issues in and around Jesus' life in his final 12 hours. Matthew 26, starting in verse 30. This is where I left off. So I, I finished with 29 when I was reading for the communion. So they just had the, they just had the Lord's Supper. Jesus astonishes them with this information, throws their life into a spiral. So they sing a hymn. Verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. He's not making it any easier. He says, all of you guys who have been with me the last three years, you're all going to be scattered. I want you to understand the anxiety that the disciples are feeling. This anxiety, this, this issue. So this develops out further, but Peter said to him, Verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter doubles down. He doesn't say, okay, well, he doesn't. You know, typically, I would, I would have just stayed silent. I was like, okay, Jesus, I think you're wrong, but I'm not going to say anything. Peter says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the other disciples join in and agree with them. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Jesus has to be either physically shaking his head or internally shaking his head. These guys don't get it. They don't really realize what's about to hit them. And is this not often the case with our lives? We don't really know what's about to hit us. After it hits us, we're thinking, what in the world is going on? This is what the disciples are experiencing. They've done it multiple times. They continue to do it after Jesus was resurrected, after Pentecost. They, they were still experiencing issues. But they begin to learn how to handle them, but not yet. So if you look at other things that were happening this night, the disciples were falling asleep in the garden while Jesus was trying to get them to pray. The Jesus, all the disciples fled from Jesus when he was arrested. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and he does it for 30 pieces of silver. You know, one of the question marks is, why did Judas do it? 
on the surface, obviously. What was he influenced by? People have all kinds of guesses at it in trying to figure it out. But he does it because that's what was necessary to be done. Judas doesn't recover from his trouble. And most people don't recover from their trouble. Judas goes out and commits suicide. He doesn't go back to repent with Jesus or nothing. He's the opposite of how Peter deals with his trouble. Because his trouble continues, right? He goes to the courtyard of Caiaphas and he denies Jesus three times adamantly. Really adamantly. In other words, he curses at a little girl or a girl, a slave girl, whatever. John is actually in the courtyard with them. He hears the whole thing. Does exactly what Jesus said he's going to do. But the thing with Peter is he eventually recovers well. And that's how God trains him for what he's going to do, among many other things. Peter has got to be in this massive turmoil to sit there within hours later denying him adamantly, then looking into Jesus' eyes, seeing him, and then all of a sudden thinking, I did exactly what I said I wasn't going to do. The anxiety that covers and, and is rampant in his life at this particular moment Look at the other people around that, may, that mess up in their, trou their trouble. Look at all the, the, the high priest, Caiaphas, and the other Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are trying Jesus. If you look in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, it says, but Je I kind of pick up into the story here, but Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you. Now, we don't use the word adjure. I have never used the word adjure. If you want to use it, that's cool. But it means I command you. I require you. If you don't do it, you're going to be cursed as a result. It is a form of you must do this. I force you by the living God, uh, which is him, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said it yourself. Nonetheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes. I, I don't get the tearing of the robes. I understand why they did it, but it seems like a weird deal. But he tears his robes and says, he has blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he deserves death. All right, so grown men, leaders, the seminary graduates and pastors of those, that religious organization, they are the guys who are mature, well-handled, well-behaved. Verse 67, they spat in his face. They spit on him. I don't know, I, I don't think I've ever purposely spit on anybody. I probably have done it accidentally, but purposely spat on, that's, I mean, are they like, and then spit? Or are they, you know, I don't know. But they spit on the man, grown men spitting on another man. They beat him. they just grown men beating another man. I don't care what he did. Really, that's what we do. Beat with their fist, and others slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it the one that hit you? These are the men who have not yet graduated out of junior high. But they're in powerful, 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 powerful positions. 
Look at Pilate, the governor, Matthew chapter 27. If you turn back to the next chapter, Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, crucify him. And he said, what, has, what evil has he done? Pilate had, wanted nothing to do with crucifying Jesus. Actually, John goes into more description. Pilate is on outside of the house that he lives in. The big house has got a courtyard inside of it. But the, the Pharisees would not go inside there because that would defile them. So they were outside. There was some kind of judgment seat out there. And so Jesus was there, and then Pilate would take him inside, away from the Pharisees, and he would ask them questions. John goes into more detail about the conversation and what they were talking about going in and out. And so Matthew's pretty much straight to the point. Luke does the same thing, just kind of straight to the point. When, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood should be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, beaten to the point of death, he handed them over to be crucified. Pilate didn't handle his trouble well. He, he, he went in with the crowd. A riot was, was, was happening. It's also told to us that they threatened him to report him to Rome. And so Pilate had fear and he gave into it. I want to look at really quick three different people that aren't mentioned very often. Pilate's wife. Matthew 27. You can stay in the same chapter there. Verses 19 and 21. Or 19 through 20. Matthew 27, 19 through 21. While he was sitting on the judgment seat. This is Pilate. His wife sent him a message. All right, so he, she sent him a text message. That, that's everybody understand. Back then, it was a handwritten message. And so somebody goes up. She's in the house. That, that's where they live. Because there, she could have been, they had another house in Caesarea. But obviously, if she could send text, she could have sent it from there. But she had to send a physical message. So she is there in the house. And they have to have already... I'm sure, had conversations about this Jesus guy. He had been creating all kinds of chaos and issues all week long. And they get to this situation, and she sends a message to him, which means it can't be a light issue. I'm sure this is not a common deal. He is sitting on his judgment seat. Message is sent, saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. She's not a believer, at least not at this point. There's no indication that she knows the Lord. There's no indication that Pilate knows, but she knows truth. This dream had given her truth, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. How many of you have suffered enough in your dream that you're willing to do something that you've never done before, put yourself out there to tell somebody what you dreamed? That's a pretty bold dream. And that's got to be a pretty vivid dream. There's something that happened in this woman's life. And I want you to understand there is one verse that mentions her in all of Scripture. And this is it. And the only thing we're told about her is she is deeply grieved because of a dream. And she sees truth and tries to communicate that to her husband. We have no idea where she goes with this. We have really no idea how Matthew even heard about the story. Was it just the Holy Spirit that revealed it to him? Or was there a servant? Maybe the guy that 
took the message, he became a believer, or she, whatever happened later on in life. Something happened to communicate the message to Matthew as to what took place. We don't know. This woman suffered greatly for a purpose. And we are given the information for a purpose. Because God is at work in people's lives and they were completely thrown off guard when it happened. This woman had no anticipation of having this crazy dream and then interrupting her husband while he's on the judgment seat. The governor of Judea, the, the area that the Romans occupied in that region. Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? He's, he's like, get me out of this. My wife is on this side. You're on this side. I'm not sure what to do. And they said, Barabbas. And that's what he does. What would be really interesting is to hear the conversation between him and his wife when he went back in the house. I've had some of those conversations similar with my wife, and they weren't pleasant. And we weren't rosy for very, you know, a little while until we finally say, I forgive you and hug. But I know you guys don't experience that as much as we do, but I'm just kidding. We all experience that, right? Sometime, I don't want to have this conversation, but I got pushed into it. Look, there's a riot about to happen. They're going to report me to Rome, whatever the case is. Pilate doesn't handle this trouble well. But there's a reason for it. And God's moving. Mark chapter 15. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Verse 21. There's a name here that's very interesting. A person that's a part of this story. This is not his best day. But is it his best day? At first, this has got to be the worst day for Simon. Simon is a very common Jewish name, so it's very well recognized that Simon is a Jew who's in Jerusalem for the Passover. It's estimated that two to three million Jews were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. A massive number of people. That's like putting two million people in Huntsville. We have no idea what that would be like, and we would all hate it. Well, he comes in, for, it's, a, it's, a, it's at least a month from Cyrene, which is where he's from. Let me, let me get to the verse. Most of you are very familiar with this, but they pressed into service a passerby. I don't know what, and the term passerby is so awkward, but a guy standing around, coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. So he's just come into town, or at least in that week, He's come into town. It's a month, at least a month journey. This is in current day Libya, which is on the southern Mediterranean coast. He has to walk through the rest of Libya, current day Libya, through Egypt, and then up into Jerusalem. No speed rail. Unless he takes a boat, it would have been shorter. But whatever the case is, it's a long journey in. But what Mark does, unlike any other gospel, so everybody mentions Simon except for John, and none of them mention this other phrase, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's put as a side note. In other words, Mark, who writes his letter to the church at Rome, he writes the letter after Paul writes Romans to the church of Rome. So Romans first, Paul writes it. Mark comes up, writes his book, and the first church to get it was the church of Rome. 
So he puts this in here, the father of Alexander and Rufus. The only reason you would do that is because you know Alexander and Rufus. The church knew, which means that Alexander and Rufus were what? Believers. Tiberius cross, which is the finish of the verse. Turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Paul, writing his letter before Mark writes his letter, greets all these people in the last chapter of Romans. Most of the chapter is devoted to greeting people. Look, what he, look who he greets in verse 13. Rufus. Greet Rufus, a chosen man in the Lord. This has got to be the same Rufus. Greet Rufus. It's very well known or commonly believed that this is the same Rufus. A chosen man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. He's not referring to Paul's biological mother. He's saying that Rufus's mother was like my mother. She took care of me at some point. Who is Rufus's mother? Simon of Cyrene's wife. Who is Simon of Cyrene? The guy who bore Jesus' cross, who came as a Jew for Passover, and now his family are believers. Something happened in Simon's life, for sure. We know what happened, at least on the surface, we see Simon having to bear Jesus' cross. There is no telling what Jesus was sharing with him or said to him in this pathway going up there. But by the time Simon got there, I bet you he's like, this is the Messiah. There, or whatever else happened in Simon's life, Simon's life was changed at that very inconvenient action. I want you to know that that's the way God works. He works in crazy, crazy ways. He's a crazy God. And he's working stuff all the time. And we don't know anything about it. That's why he tells us, trouble is your friend. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to give you a really two-minute version. Something you guys are familiar with is Hurricane Rita. Back in the day, 2004, I think, whatever it was, Five weeks after Hurricane Katrina, which wiped out at least the people out of New Orleans, many of them fled to the Houston area. Rita comes in five weeks later, blows up. They think it's going to land in Corpus. It moves all the way to the Louisiana border. But all of Houston tries to evacuate because they're all afraid of, of the Katrina happening in Houston. And so the Houston becomes a massive parking lot. I don't know if you guys were a part of that. I was living in Giddings, Texas, which is towards Austin, out 290. We run a, ran a Christian camp there. And so everybody for that weekend canceled. And so traffic was going crazy. And I'm sure right through Huntsville as well. And so traffic was backed up nine miles from getting to the first stoplight. People just sitting in their cars coming out of, out of Houston. So we decide we're going to go out and recruit people to stay at a camp that's now going to be vacant because we have all this food for the guests who are not going to show up. It took some people 36 hours to get from the Baytown area to the other side of Houston. 36 hours. With kids overnight in their car, nothing. Gas is out. It was a crazy time if you weren't a part of it. The short story is we had a lot of people that came to the camp, over 300 people. Most of them had no plans of going to Camp Teos at that particular time. The weekend, it was beautiful. Sun was shining. Wind was blowing a little bit. And everybody swam in the pool, ate together. 
and we got to share with different people and meet them. And then there was a, a, a Hispanic pastor who was coming out of Houston, evacuating, got to Huntsville or the Huntsville area, took a nap or was in his car, had a dream. He's, this is what he tells me. He has a dream. He needs to go to Camp Teos. Understand, 45, 290. So he cuts across. It should be the other way if you're looking. Ops. Anyway, he cuts across going west, arrives at the camp. On Sunday morning, we have these guests. Most of them, or a good chunk of them, come to a Sunday morning service. I preach. He interprets. Five people who speak only Spanish were saved that morning. And I can tell you numerous other stories of people who were evacuated from Katrina, then evacuated from Rita, and were at our camp, and we got to share with them. One lady who had just had a C-section, hadn't even had time to get to the pharmacy, showed up at our camp. There's crazy stuff out of crazy disasters. God is at work. I'm telling you, that's what he does. He does that in our lives. He's doing that in our lives. There's no question the last person, I'm running out of time quickly, but the last person here is the thief on the cross. Matthew 27. I'm going to start with Matthew 27, 38 through 44. Matthew 27, 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. I guess you shake your head to wag it. I don't know what that is, but wagging your heads and saying... You who are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. The other the thieves start saying the same thing. Actually, look, skip down to verse 44. Matthew 27, 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Matthew's vision or, or interpretation of this, both robbers were cursing at Jesus. To give you a timeline really quick, Jesus is on the cross and, and these men too, really, for about six hours, suffering through the greatest, most horrific form of torture and death that's ever been invented by man. You are literally tortured to the very edge of life and then you die. Usually it takes two or three days but in this case, they had to get rid of these guys because of Passover. Jesus died early in the process after six hours. The first three hours, it's light. The second three hours, it's completely dark. And there is, as we see, conversation happening with multiple parties, including the robbers with Jesus. As they're trying to lift themselves in this suffering torture, trying to breathe, they are also able to get words out and are communicating with one another. So at some point in this six-hour chaos and complete torture, one of the robbers figures it out. Just as we read or sang in the song, if you remember that, how much he loved what was taking place because he figured it out. He didn't figure much out. He figured enough out. If you go to then Matt, I'm sorry, um, to Luke chapter 23, verse 39. There's a conversation between the two robbers. One of them says, look, we deserve to be here. He doesn't. Verse 42 says, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. 
besides Jesus himself, but here you have this man, this thief, who has a life of trouble and is saved at the very end in his torture device. It's an amazing, this story is here for us. It's written for our purpose. It's written for the readers. Matthew and Luke, they write about this for us to know. God wants us to know this. This man didn't need a church building. He didn't need an aisle to walk down. He didn't need to memorize John 3.16, which hadn't been written yet. He didn't need any of that. He didn't need to be baptized. He just believed right then in who Jesus was in the very basic form. If you're ever wondering how to get saved, look at the thief on the cross. The most basic, simple, right-to-the-point salvation He dies and he's in paradise with Jesus. This man's trouble, he recovers. Before we close out, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul makes this statement. He's being ridiculed and abused by some Churchgoers, some people that are part of these churches that are accusing him falsely of different things, maybe Jews, Gentiles, we don't really know. And there's multiple people that are involved here. Second Timothy 4, 16, he says, At my defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. That creates a lot of anxiety. Paul experiencing it often. May it not be counted against them. In other words, I forgive them. This is what a consider it all joy does for us forgiveness for those who are causing the trouble. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Paul says exactly what the purpose is of the considerate all joy. So God gets the glory. People who are lost see it and we become a light in this world. The Lord rescued me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The point here is that Paul knew it didn't matter what they did to him. They could make fun of him and falsely accuse him. They could do whatever they wanted to do with him. He was going to be in heaven. The worst they could do was kill him. And that would actually be a good thing. He actually argued that and and, and multiple times I'd rather be in heaven. And that's where he would go if they did the worst thing they could to him. Are we not in the same position? This world can't do anything that will harm us. They can't take eternity away from us. They can't take the Lord Jesus Christ away from us. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do. We have it. And we always will. To believe in Jesus Christ is an eternal belief. The last one, and I'm going to close it. This is it. Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is on the road to Emmaus. That whole story about Jesus being kind of sneaky at the beginning, pulling him into a little trap and then saying, ha, I'm really Jesus. You know, this whole thing that he's working through with these two men, and then all of a sudden their their eyes are opened and he vanishes. Well, during the process, it says that he doesn't know them, or at least that's the way they believe. He doesn't, they're a stranger. And these two guys don't know him. They don't recognize him. 
But he says to them, after they explain what's going on, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Basically, he says, you're a fool, and why haven't you figured it out? Verse 26 is the key. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Look at the trouble that Jesus went through. He gets to this point and he identifies it really quickly. Was it not necessary for this to happen? And I want you to understand that every trial in your life and in mine, even though I have a hard time handling it, is there for a purpose. Every bit of it. You may not even see all the purpose now, and even in your lifetime. But there are other people that are going to see that purpose. Your kids will see it. Your friends will see it. Other people will see it. And if we handle it as, as God calls us to handle it, we will be lights in this world. And there's nothing more than this world needs than a light in how to handle trouble. Because we are a world of trouble. And it is crazy out there. It's crazy here. Consider it all joy. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, that we will, when we encounter these troubles, which could be in five minutes, that we see it and work to see it and trust you that we may learn to see it with all joy, knowing that you are growing us and working on us into a mature believer that we may be lights in this world and give you glory. We say this in your name. Amen.